It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. If you'd like to hear this show without ads, there's an ad-free RSS feed available for my Patreon supporters. Go to Patreon.com slash Sean Munger, and if you become a patron, I'll let you know how to get the ad-free feed of Second Decade in your podcatcher of choice. And it'd be great to have the support. In memory of Mr. Samuel Haley, who died in the year 1811, age 84, he was a man of great ingenuity, industry, honor, and honesty, true to his country, and a man who did a great public good in building a dock and receiving into his enclosure many a poor distressed seamen and fishermen in distress of weather. Inscription on a gravestone still visible at Haley Cemetery, Smutty Nose Island, Maine. Two hundred and ten years ago, in the second decade of the 19th century, the world was a strange, fascinating, and precarious place. It was a time of global conflict and uneasy peace. A time of great environmental change. A time of disaster and miracles, anomalies and mysteries. It was the time when our modern world began to emerge, and a time like almost no other in history. This podcast is about stories, true stories, of this remarkable era. This is the Second Decade Podcast. My name is Sean Munger. I'm a historian, author, teacher, and podcaster. You can visit the website for this podcast at secondDecade.net. Second Decade is spelled out, all one word, two D's in the middle. Thanks for joining me on this journey into the past. Episode 55, Smutty Nose Island. Just off the coast of Maine, straddling the line that divides Maine from New Hampshire, approximately nine miles from Kittery, there lie nine small islands that are known as the Isles of Shoals. They have strange names, Appledore, Star, Malaga, White, Seavey, Lunging, Duck, Cedar, and the strangest of all, Smutty Nose. A few people live on these islands, but some are uninhabited or have only seasonal residence. Smutty Nose is one of the ones that's uninhabited, at least today. The Isles of Shoals are the kinds of places that epitomize New England coastal and maritime culture. The history of these islands is so intertwined with folklore, legend, and pseudo-historical mythology that it's impossible to separate one strand from another and figure out what's really true. If you had grandparents that grew up in small towns of coastal New England, you'll be well familiar with the kind of history that comes out of these places. Stories told thousands of times over many decades, written down by old-timers in poorly sourced 19th century memoirs, and tales that resurface in yellowed clipping files kept in the basements of local historical societies and museums, many of which have resurfaced yet again in this century on the internet. 
the gestalt of coastal New England continues to have a hold on American popular culture today. Martin Scorsese's 2010 psychological thriller film Shutter Island takes place on a fictional New England coastal island that might as well be one of the Isles of Shoals. Wes Anderson's 2012 film Moonrise Kingdom, also set on a fictional New England coastal island, is a totally different kind of story, but comes from a similar place. These are the kinds of islands where every rock and trail has a story attached to it, an old Native American name, a rumor of buried treasure, or some rumored shipwreck back in colonial or American Revolution times. Smugglers, pirates, and dastardly British captains feature prominently in these kinds of tales. If you're about 12, this is the kind of history you probably really love. I did when I was that age. As we'll see in this episode, though, separating fact from folklore and mythology is often a difficult task. The sources for this kind of history are often self-referential. They all cite each other, which incidentally is also a hallmark of pseudo-history in what you might call woo studies, involving subjects like UFOs, cryptids, and conspiracy theories. Nevertheless, if Google Maps can be considered at least a partially reliable source, you may be intrigued as I was when you zoom in on Smutty Nose Island, I'll put the exact coordinates on the webpage for this episode, when you zoom in on the island and see a feature labeled Graves of Spanish Sailors. If you click on this bona fide historical landmark, you'll see that the Graves of Spanish Sailors has a 4.5 star rating with 13 reviews. A Google user writes, quote, Wow, a mass murder happened in one of these old houses back in 1875. A man took an axe to his wife and two of his kids. Another man in 1899 butchered his own brother. End quote. None of that is accurate, by the way. Another review reads, quote, It's a very historical place, and it's really cool, and it's interesting to think of the Spanish sailors in the 1500s. No punctuation. There are rumored to be several graves, some say as many as 15, of Spanish sailors who were buried on Smutty Nose Island, and whose resting places remain visible and accessible today. The traditional story is that they were crewmen aboard a Spanish sailing ship called the Sagunto, which was caught in a storm and wrecked on Smutty Nose Island in January 1813. That date, 1813, is what caught my attention, because, of course, it's the second decade. And I first came across the story of the alleged Segunto wreck in a short passage in the work of New England coastal historian Edward Rose Snow, who has come up on this podcast before, and with whom I, as you may recall, have something of a love-hate relationship. I'll talk more about Snow later on, but longtime listeners might remember his work, featured prominently in Episode 9 of Second Decade, about Theodosia Burr-Alston, who incidentally was also shipwrecked in early 1813. My verdict at that time was that Snow's colorful story about what happened to her was full of crap. For that exact reason, when I came across the Segunto story that explains the graves of Spanish sailors on Smutty Nose Island, I was immediately skeptical, and also eager to put this little bit of New England coastal folklore to the test of real documentary history. This episode is the result of going down that research rabbit hole. Is the story true? Are there really Spanish sailors buried on Smutty Nose Island? And if so, how did they get there? Is the Segunto legend true? Perhaps on a more visceral level, if we put Second Decade Podcast in one corner and Edward Rose Snow in another for a rematch, who will emerge victorious? That's really why I chose to do this topic, right? 
Well, maybe a little bit. But I also chose it because I'm as enamored with this romantic New England coastal history as many other people are, and because it's a fun, light subject to cover after the admitted heavy issues we took on in the last two episodes. So join me now as we set sail for the rocky shores of Smutty Nose Island. Good evening. As usual, a few brief housekeeping announcements before we delve into the substance of the show. This is going to be the last episode of what we can loosely term Season 4 of Second Decade. I'm going to take a break for a few months and return in the fall, most likely September. The last few episodes of the show have been very research-heavy, and they've also been the most popular episodes in Second Decade history. This one is going to be a little lighter. There's still so much to cover on this podcast. I still have a wish list of topics I'd like to do. Fitting in the research for this show amongst all my other activities, including my other podcast, Green Screen, has been quite daunting the last few months. But that's the plan, anyway. Take a breather for a little while and then return for Season 5. Some listeners have inquired about my health. I'm pleased to say that it's been very good, and I'm now fully vaccinated against COVID, as I hope all of you are. There is a new edition of my novel out, The Valley of Forever, that's science fiction slash magical realism. It's about time travel and the nature of time. It starts with a mysterious disaster aboard a cruise ship and eventually takes us to a remote valley in the Himalayas where the 18th century never ended. It's available on Amazon. The Kindle is only 99 cents, also available as an audiobook on Audible. If you listen to this show, you're used to hearing my voice, so if you want more of it, pick it up. The Valley of Forever. It's fun. Check out my other podcast, Green Screen, which is the environmental movie podcast. We do a surprising amount of environmental history on that show, so you might enjoy it. Also, my kind of sleeper side project, Age of Confusion, is an alternate history show. It's fiction, presenting an alternate timeline of history from the 1960s to the 1980s. That show has a very small but enthusiastic listenership. Those are both available on Apple and Google Podcasts. And as always, there are history courses available on my website, seanmunger.com. History is more important now than ever, especially with the teaching of honest history coming under fire from right-wing ideologues who are terrified of people learning about the past. These days, teaching history is a political act. But learning history can also be fun. You can find a number of interesting classes on my site. One of them is free, or you can get access to all of them for $5 a month. Again, seanmunger.com, just click on History Courses, and you'll see what I'm offering. And now we move on to this strange little island off the coast of Maine, Smutty Nose, and the mystery, is it a mystery, of those Spanish sailors who are said to have washed up there in 1813. The main economic activity in and around the Isles of Shoals was, in both pre-contact and colonial times, fishing. It's a rocky place, inhospitable. You're not going to build summer homes on Smutty Nose Island, though some have lived there from time to time. It gets its name reportedly from early colonial-era fishermen, who saw seaweed on the rocks as they approached in a boat and thought it looked like the smutty nose of a larger creature. Smutty Nose Island is about 2,800 feet long and 1,000 feet wide. Its total area is about 27.1 acres. The highest elevation on the island is 30 feet. 
In the early 1870s, shortly after the Civil War, a Boston journalist named Samuel Adams Drake visited Smutty Nose Island. Drake, a former war correspondent during the Civil War and eventually a commander of a Union Army post in Kansas, was the son of Samuel Gardner Drake, who established the first antiquarian bookstore in the United States. The elder Drake was one of the founders of the New England Historic Genealogical Society, of which I have been a member in the past. I've also studied in their archives in Boston. Some material from the NEHGS library has made it onto the show, I believe, in the Year Without Summer episodes. Anyway, that's a digression. Samuel Adams Drake published a book in 1875 called Nooks and Corners of the New England Coast, and he describes Smutty Nose Island in substantial detail. If you'll allow me, I'll quote liberally from the book. It's in the public domain because it sets up the physical setting and also tells us about the island, as well as the traditional legend of the Spanish sailors buried on it. So here is Nooks and Corners of the New England Coast. Quote, Smutty Nose, the most verdant of the islands, was one of the earliest settled. The stranger for the first time feels something like soil beneath his feet. There is a wharf and a little landing place where a boat may be beached, Within Haley's little cove, I looked down into the water and saw the perch swimming lazily about. This was the only place where the old-time industry of the Isles showed even a flake, so to speak, of its former greatness. There were a few men engaged in drying their fish near the landing. Clear weather with westerly winds is best for this purpose. Dull or foggy weather spoils the fish. At a little distance, shorn of some of its former adornments, is the homestead of Samuel Haley who with his two sons and their families occupied the island many years ago. Not far off is the little family graveyard of the Haleys, with the palings falling in decay and the bounds overgrown with a tangle of rank grass. At one time, by his energy, Mr. Haley had made of his island a self-sustaining possession. Before the revolution, he had built a windmill, salt works, and a rope walk, a bakehouse, brewery, distillery, blacksmith, and cooper shops succeeded in the first year of peace, all going to decay within his lifetime. By all report of him, he was a good and humane man. A few steps farther on are the graves of the fourteen shipwrecked mariners, marked by rude boulders. It is entered into the Gosport Records. Quote, 1813, January 14th, ship Segunto stranded on Smutty Nose Isle. January 15th, one man found. 16th, six men found. 21st, seven men found. The record sums up the number as 12 bodies found, where the total appears to be 14. End quote. These Gosport records that Drake refers to are the Gosport town records. They're quoted in nearly every account of the Spanish grave story, and this record appears to be the source of the identification of the ship, Segunto, which is usually stated as the ship that wrecked on Smutty Nose Island that day, January 14, 1813. Hold this thought, it comes up again later. Samuel Adams Drake was a visitor to Smutty Nose Island. Another writer, only a few years later, also wrote about the place and the Spanish grave's legend and she could at least lay a claim to being a native, or as close as you can get, on an island that has only been sporadically inhabited since colonial times. Celia Thaxter, her maiden name was Leighton, was a writer and poet. Though her name is pretty obscure now, she was a best-selling and beloved author of the late 19th century. She's quite a natural conduit for the kind of phenomenon I talked about at the beginning of this episode, 
historical events, especially in coastal New England, becoming wrapped up in folklore and stories, published in 19th century books and repeated by generations of old timers, until eventually it's impossible to distinguish between the real history and the layers of folklore. Celia Layton was born in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, just across the bay from Kittery, Maine, in 1835. Her father was appointed the keeper of the lighthouse that was built on White Island, one of the Isles of Shoals, in 1821. Incidentally, the wreck of the Segunto was said to be the impetus for the construction of the lighthouse in the first place. In the 1830s, Thomas Layton, Celia's father, bought the four Isles of Shoals on the main side of the line, Appledore Island, Malaga, Cedar, and Smutty Nose. He moved his family there, to Smutty Nose I mean, in 1841, when Celia was six. These childhood memories were the source of a book she wrote in 1878, three years after Drake's, called Among the Isles of Shoals. In that book, Celia Thaxter, she got married in 1851, speaks lovingly of the patriarch of Smutty Nose Island, Samuel Haley. She credits him, as does Samuel Adams Drake, with building what little infrastructure the island possessed, including a seawall that connected Smutty Nose to its neighbor, Malaga Island, and a series of windmills that powered his milling operation. Haley and his family apparently lived in what we might today call an off-the-grid fashion. His original house was restored between 1989 and 1993 and is one of the oldest preserved houses in Maine. The old square house which he built upon this island, wrote Celia Thaxter, and which still stands, had long ago a broad balcony running the whole length of the house beneath the second-story windows. This being in a ruinous condition, I never dared venture out upon it, but a large square lookout with a tout railing which he built on top of the house remained till within a few years. And I found it a charming place to linger in on still days and watch the sky and the sea and the vessels and the play of color over the bright face of the world. End quote. This poetic description gives you a sense of why Celia Thaxter's writing was so popular in the Victorian era. Before there was a lighthouse on White Island, which was built just after the second decade ended, Samuel Haley apparently used to put a bright light in the window of his house facing southeast out to sea every night. This, too, gets co-opted into the story of the shipwrecked Spanish sailors. Celia Thaxter again, quote, On that stormy January night, runs the story, he placed the light as usual in his chamber window, and I dare say prayed in his good heart that no vessel might be wandering near this dangerous place, tossed helpless on the raging sea in the thick darkness and bitter cold and blinding snow. But that night the great ship Segunto drove, crashing, full upon the fatal southeast point, in sight of the tiny spark that burned peacefully, unwavering, in that quiet chamber. Her costly timbers of mahogany and cedar wood were splintered on the sharp teeth of those inexorable rocks. Her cargo of dried fruits and nuts, and bales of broadcloth, and gold and silver, was tossed about the shore, and part of her crew were thrown alive upon it. Some of them saw the light and crawled toward it, benumbed with cold and spent with fatigue and terror. Two of them gained the stone wall in front of the house, but their ebbing strength would not allow them to climb over. They threw themselves upon it and perished miserably, with safety, warmth, and comfort so close at hand. 
End quote. Thaxter's story goes on. In it, Samuel Haley awakens in the morning and sees the outline of the wrecked ship against the snow covering the rocks. He, his sons, and, quote, his men, she doesn't identify who they are, they go out to try to rescue anyone still left alive, but they're too late. In Thaxter's story, he finds 14 bodies, all dead of exposure. A 15th is found the next summer reduced to a skeleton in some bushes near the shore. Fourteen shallow graves were quarried for the unknown dead in the iron earth, says Celia Thaxter, and there they lie, with him who buried them a little above in the same grassy slope. She then inevitably quotes Samuel Haley's epitaph, which, being written in stone, is one of the few historical sources in this story that's difficult to get wrong. This was not Celia Thaxter's first iteration of the disaster. She wrote a poem about it ten years earlier, in 1865. That poem was eventually published in a book by her brother, Oscar Layton, in 1929. Celia was dead by then, having died in 1894. It's exactly the kind of histrionic Victorian-era hyperbole that tended to sell books in the late 19th century. Part of the poem goes, O Spanish women, o'er far the seas, could I but show you where your dead repose, could I send tidings on this northern breeze that strong and steady blows? In 1943, New England coastal historian Edward Rose Snow, there he is again, published one of his many books titled Storms and Shipwrecks of New England. In the chapter that appears in this book on wrecks in Maine and New Hampshire, in a small section on the Isles of Shoals, Snow repeats Celia Thaxter's version pretty much uncritically including the involvement of Samuel Haley, the light in the window, 14 bodies recovered, two of the sailors dying of exposure just before they get to the stone wall, bounding Haley's property. Snow also claims that a silver watch was found washed up on shore, its hands stopped at 4 o'clock. The initials P.S. were engraved on the back of the watch. Snow also adds a modern postscript from his own life. Edward Rose Snow served in the U.S. Army Air Force with the 12th Bomber Command in World War II and apparently was wounded in North Africa. He claims that in January 1942, he was convalescing at a hospital in Oran, which is now in Algeria. A nurse who attended him was from Malaga, Spain. She had fled Franco's fascist government in the 1930s. Supposedly, the nurse told Snow that she had ancestors from Malaga who sailed aboard a ship in the year 1813 and never returned to port, and he told her about the shipwreck on Smutty Nose Island. Though he's careful not to come out and say it, the implication is that, of course, this must have been the Segunto, and what a small world it is. There are significant problems with the story of the Segunto shipwreck as told so dramatically and romantically by Celia Thaxter and retold as coastal history slash folklore by Edward Rose Snow in the 1940s. You knew that was going to be the punchline of the second half of this episode, right? One of the problems involves the story's major character, Captain Samuel Haley, the patriarch of Smutty Nose Island. If you've been listening closely and paying attention, you might have already figured out what that problem is. Samuel Haley died in 1811. 
His tombstone, which everybody involved in this story, including me, quotes, tells us that. Yet the Gosport records are clear on the exact date of the Segunto shipwreck, January 14, 1813. Celia Thaxter glosses over this discrepancy. In her 1878 book, she says, quote, There is much uncertainty with regard to dates and records of those old times. Mr. Haley is said to have died in 1811, but I have always heard that he was living when the Segunto was wrecked upon his island, which happened, according to the Gosport records, in 1813. After quoting the infamous Gosport record, she adds, quote, I am inclined to think the writer made a mistake in his date as well as his spelling and arithmetic, for it is an accepted tradition that Mr. Haley found and buried the dead crew of that ship, and I have always heard of it spoken as a simple fact. End quote. Um, how about no? I'm sorry, Celia Thaxter, but accepted tradition, and I have always heard of it spoken as a simple fact, doesn't cut it when we're talking about documentary history. But of course, we can forgive her. She was a poet, not a historian. The reality is that there were two Samuel Haley's. Samuel Haley Sr. did indeed die in 1811 and was buried on Smutty Nose Island, where his grave is plainly visible. His son was also named Samuel Haley. Though not actually a captain, he was known as Captain Haley, and he inherited his father's property. In 1816, Samuel Haley Jr. would later gain title to Hog Island, another of the Isles of Shoals, from the state of Massachusetts. Maine did not split off from Massachusetts until 1820, in exchange for a promise to build and maintain a dock and seawall on the island, which he apparently did. Samuel Haley Jr. died in 1839, two years before Celia Layton and her family came to live on Smutty Nose Island. Should she have known this before she started spinning her romantic yarns about the Spanish wreck? Well, maybe, but again, she wasn't a historian. Edward Rose Snow, though, has no excuse. So, there's confusion about the date of the wreck and who was involved. Turns out there's also confusion about which ship was wrecked out there. In his book, published three years before Celia Thaxter's, Samuel Adams Drake says that it wasn't the Segunto at all that was wrecked on Smutty Nose Island in January 1813, though he insists a ship did crash there at that time. According to him, and backed up by a contemporary newspaper, the Columbian Sentinel of Boston, January 16, 1813, the Segunto, a Spanish ship out of Cadiz, bound for New York, came into the port of Newport, Rhode Island on January 11th. Supposedly, the Segunto had been sailing for 73 days, was out of food and water, and the crew suffering from frostbite. Clearly, there was a big storm raking the eastern seaboard in January 1813. In fact, it was the self-same storm system that sank the ship Theodosia Burr Alston was traveling on the previous week further south. But the Segunto clearly did make it to port. Her cargo was wine, raisins, and salt. The letter that reported her putting in to Newport noted, saw no English cruisers. Keep in mind that in January 1813, the United States was at war with Britain, this is the War of 1812, and the British were making at least a half-hearted attempt to blockade the coast, though because of how thinly spread their forces were, thanks to Napoleon, they didn't do a very good job of it. 
So what was this other ship, the one that wrecked on Smutty Nose Island, if it wasn't the Segunto? Here is what Samuel Adams Drake said about it. Quote, It was in a blinding snowstorm and a gale that strewed the shore from Penobscot to Hatteras with wrecks that a ship built of cedar and mahogany was thrown on these rocks. Not a living soul was left to tell the tale of that bitter January night. The ill-fated vessel was richly laden, no doubt, for boxes of raisins and almonds from Malaga drifted on shore the next morning. On a piece of the wreck that came in, a silver watch of English make was found, with the letters P.S. graven on the seals, and among the debris was a Spanish and part of an American ensign, for it was wartime then between England and the American states. The watch had stopped at exactly four o'clock, or when time ceased for those hapless Spaniards. There were also found some twenty letters addressed south of New York. Conjecture said it was a Spanish ship from Cadiz bound for Philadelphia, end quote. Well, I guess that's helpful, but if you're still skeptical, you're not alone. Remember what we're dealing with here. Coastal history, which tends to be cocooned in folklore and transmitted through literature, drama, and more recently the internet and the tall tales of tour guides. Call me crazy, but I wasn't satisfied with this explanation of the Spanish grave story either. Is there any, you know, real documentary history here? Well, apparently there is. There is a document in the records of the General Court of Massachusetts dated January 12, 1818, and signed by Samuel Haley, the son, not the father. Haley claimed to the court that a ship called the Concepcion, also sailing from Cadiz, was the one that wrecked on Smutty Nose Island. The captain of this ship was Don Juan Cojara. The terrible storm, the same one that killed Theodosia Burr Alston, caused a gale and whiteout conditions along the main coast. The wreck occurred on the rocky shore of Smutty Nose Island at night, on January 13th, Wednesday. No inhabitants of the island, principally Haley and his family, knew about the wreck until the next morning, when wreckage began to wash ashore. Then there were bodies. The first was found on Friday, January 15th. Six more bodies were found on Sunday, the 17th. On January 21, five more bodies were discovered. One was, quote, grappled up in Hog Island Passage. Another corpse was found in this same place on January 27th, now two weeks after the wreck. That must have smelled good. And there is a record of a final body, presumably just bones, found on August 8th, 1813, eight months later. The Concepcion was apparently old and rickety and couldn't withstand the pounding of the violent waves. In this account and others based on it, the cargo was not raisins and almonds, and certainly not the bales of broadcloth and gold and silver mentioned by Celia Thaxter, but salt, ordinary salt, which would have dissolved in the surf. Now this sounds like a more plausible story. Not a romantic and dramatic shipwreck with freezing waterlogged survivors crawling ashore and dying within view of Haley's cottage, but a rickety ship broken up in the surf, no survivors, and nothing really worth salvaging. And this account is at least supported by documentary history. It seems the number of bodies recovered was 14, not 15. The detail of that last skeletal Spaniard found the next summer plays havoc with the body count, but it seems to have been 14. Not to tear down Celia Thaxter even more, 
but apparently even her 1865 poem about the shipwreck wasn't as original as you might think. In 1847, another poet from Portsmouth, New Hampshire, James Kennard, wrote a poem called The Wreck of the Saguntum, which was also about the disaster, and apparently even more flowery and turgid than Celia's was 18 years later. Kennard's poem ends with these lines, No mourners stood about their graves, no friends above them wept, a hasty prayer was uttered there, unknown, unknelled, they slept. Celia Thaxter seems to have expanded her original poem and the idea behind it into the story she tells in her book, Among the Isles of Shoals. She had an ulterior motive for writing this book, too. Her father, Thomas Layton, after retiring from the lighthouse-keeping business, built a resort hotel called the Oceanic on Star Island, another of the Isles of Shoals. That hotel was a mainstay of the island's business economy. But what really brought in the tourist dollars was the event that Smutty Nose Island is most famous for, far and beyond the Spanish Rex story. It lies outside the scope of the second decade, so I'll only refer to it briefly. On March 6, 1873, two women, Karen and Anita Christensen, were murdered on the island. They were living in one of the houses originally built by Samuel Haley, which has since been torn down. Their husbands were fishermen who were, at the time, off in Portsmouth. A third woman, Maren Hontvet, escaped the attack. She claimed the killer was Louis Wagner, another fisherman. There was some doubt as to the strength of the evidence against Wagner, but he was executed for the crimes in 1875. This incident, the Smutty Nose Island murders, remains famous even in our own time. It was the subject of a historical novel, The Weight of Water, by Anita Shreve, published in 1997, which itself was made into a movie directed by Catherine Bigelow in the year 2000. Incidentally, we featured two Catherine Bigelow films on my other podcast, Green Screen, although not this one. Anyway, long story short, the murders put Smutty Nose Island on the map. Celia Thaxter wrote a book about them, called A Memorable Murder, published in 1875, the year Wagner was executed. She seems to have written the book, Among the Isles of Shoals, to cash in on the tourists who were now flooding into these remote islands as a result of the murder disaster tourism, if you will, and who were looking for a simple guidebook, which had not existed before that time. You can tell that Among the Isles of Shoals was probably written hastily and without a lot of forethought. I mean, honestly, confusing Samuel Haley Jr. and Sr. when you yourself used to live on that island and presumably know its history seems like a pretty big quality control error. So, slowly and surely, we're hacking away at the legend of the Spanish sailors. Let's quietly dismiss the account of Celia Thaxter, and which, because he based his account on hers, means we also have to say goodbye to Edward Rose Snow, who is now 0 for 2 on his dealings with this podcast. But Drake and his account is still standing, and we have that 1818 court document that seems to prove that there was a shipwreck on this island. We even know the name of the ship and what she was carrying, and we know there were bodies recovered and buried on Smutty Nose Island. So that means we're done, right? If you like this podcast, please do me a favor. Well, maybe not so fast. I want you to go back to Smutty Nose Island on Google Maps, which is where we started. I've got the coordinates on the webpage for this episode. 
Zoom way in on the little blue castle icon that says Graves of Spanish Sailors. In case you don't know, I use Google Maps heavily as a teaching aid in my online history classes. In fact, some of my classes are really based on showing places on Google Maps and using them to illuminate the history that occurred there. Look at the site purported to be the Graves of Spanish Sailors. You'll see some trees and some scrubby ground, but you'll also see lots and lots of rocks exposed through the topsoil. Most of this island is rock. The topsoil is very thin. Indeed, one of the sources I consulted for this episode, an article from seacoastnh.com, I'll put that link on the webpage, says that the topsoil on Smutty Nose Island is about a foot deep. So you're telling me that 14 bodies are buried here in a ground that has 12 inches of soil before you hit bedrock and that this was done in January in coastal Maine where the ground is frozen? Does that sound a little far-fetched to you? Just to be clear, although the grave of Samuel Haley, the one that died in 1811, is undoubtedly there, it's on higher ground where evidently there is more soil You can see his grave on findagrave.com, surrounded by others of his family. And as you can tell, the terrain there is grassy. But the specific site identified as the graves of Spanish sailors is a different story. The traditional site of the graves of Spanish sailors was identified on Smutty Nose Island by Henry Ingersoll Bowditch, a noted doctor and Boston abolitionist who rubbed shoulders with William Lloyd Garrison and Frederick Douglass before the Civil War, and who later founded the Massachusetts Board of Health. Bowditch spent 10 days on the Isles of Shoals in 1858. It is his journal that identifies the site where the Spanish sailors are said to rest. Bowditch found 28 stones in two rows near the Haley Family Cemetery. According to him, there were 14 headstones and 14 footstones. There's that number 14 again. They were buried in a trench, but some were set apart from the others. He speculated these might have been the officers, as opposed to ordinary seamen. In 1991, New England archaeologist Faith Harrington decided to put all of this legend to the ultimate test. Are there human remains buried at the purported Spanish sailor's gravesite, or aren't there? After all, finding them would be the ultimate proof. Small test pits were dug in the area identified by Henry Ingersoll Bowditch more than a century before. The test confirmed that, indeed, the topsoil in this area of Smutty Nose Island is about 12 inches deep. And Harrington's team not only found no human remains, no bones, no clothes, no jewelry, nothing, they found no indication that the ground had ever been disturbed. After all, it was solid rock just a foot down. Harrington concluded that it was unlikely that 14 Spanish sailors were buried there under those conditions. Nevertheless, she was apparently unwilling to close the door completely on the theory, but it does seem like a good bet that if there are 14 dead Spanish sailors somewhere in the ground on Smutty Nose Island, they're not where Henry Ingersoll Bowditch and Google Maps thinks they are. In this century, a new series of editions of Edward Rose Snow's books were republished, edited by author Jeremy de Entremont. Snow himself died in 1982. In the 2003 edition of Storms and Shipwrecks of New England, which is where I found the legend of the Spanish sailors, Entremont adds a modern postscript, mitigating some of Snow's uncritical swallowing of this folklore-wrapped legend. 
D'Entremont repeats the caveat that archaeological work on the purported grave site has uncovered no evidence of human remains there. He also quotes another modern author, Robert Ellis Cahill, who suggests a theory that may partially explain the confusion between the Segunto, said in the legend to be the ship wrecked, and the Concepcion, which Samuel Haley told the Massachusetts court in 1818 was the one that crashed. The two ships, according to Cahill, were traveling together. They had sailed from Cadiz to the West Indies and then went up the eastern seaboard of the United States to Portsmouth, New Hampshire, to get fish, stockfish, to take back to Europe. They had just set out back for Spain on the night of January 14th when the storm hit. Segunto made it to Newport, but the Concepcion vanished in the storm and presumably wrecked. This accounts for the confusion between them. But it still doesn't explain whether there really are graves of the crew there on Smutty Nose or not. I was not able to get a copy of Cahill's book by the time the research for this episode was completed, so I can't tell you what sources he relied on. His book was written in 1984. I don't know if I am qualified to have a theory about this case. If I did, though, it would probably resemble Cahill's theory in a couple of respects. To me, it seems there seems to be too much smoke to dismiss totally that there was at least a little bit of fire here, meaning I think the evidence that we can verify does point to the conclusion that a ship wrecked on the shore of Smutty Nose Island in January 1813, and that it seems to have been Spanish in origin. We've got the Gosport Town records, flawed but oddly specific, and that 1818 court document. These legends, after all, started from something. I don't think the ship that wrecked was the Segunto. The newspaper records tell us that. I think we can give Samuel Haley Jr. the benefit of the doubt when he said it was the Concepcion which may have been traveling with the Segunto. And it also seems likely to me that there were bodies from this ship, possibly the entire crew, that washed up on shore. It's also a good guess that the cargo that washed up, if any, was non-salvageable. So what would Haley have done with 13 dead, frozen Spanish sailors who could not be identified? This was January and the ground, what little there is of it on Smutty Nose Island, was frozen solid. My guess, and it's nothing more than a guess, is that he might have stored them in an outbuilding or put them in temporary graves, perhaps under piles of rocks, of which there was no shortage on this island, waiting perhaps for warmer weather to bury them someplace more suitable. Or possibly they were buried at sea. I do not think they're buried where the traditional Graves of Spanish Sailors site on the island claims they are. If they were there, the archaeological expedition in 1991 would have found some evidence of it. Perhaps they were buried somewhere else on the island. After all, attention has been focused on the traditional site, mainly because Henry Ingersoll Bowditch said that that was where they were, based on the 28 stones he saw laid out there in 1858. But I don't think they're at that site. In this, I'm probably going against the conventional wisdom of what people would like for any number of reasons to believe about Smutty Nose Island. In March 2021, as I was beginning my research for this episode, I corresponded with the Kittery Historical and Naval Museum, whose director told me that she believes there are Spanish sailors buried on Smutty Nose Island. She may be right, but we may never know for sure. Wherever they are, and whatever happened to them that stormy night in 1813, their true stories are lost to history. 
If you like this podcast for real this time, please do me a favor. Leave a star rating and a review on iTunes or Google Podcasts. If you have social media or talk to other history buffs, give Second Decade a mention. My historical sources for this episode include The Isles of Shoals in Lore and Legend by Lyman V. Rutledge, Bari Publishers, 1965, Nooks and Corners of the New England Coast by Samuel Adams Drake, Harper and Brothers, 1875, Among the Isles of Shoals by Celia Thaxter, Houghton Mifflin, 1915, and an especially helpful source, Mystery of the Spanish Sailors' Graves by J. Dennis Robinson, published on seacoastnh.com. 2006. Also special thanks to Kim Sanborn of the Kittery Historical and Naval Museum of Kittery, Maine, who answered some questions and helped me track down sources. The theme music for this podcast is called The Long Road Ahead by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com, used under Creative Commons 3.0 license. Listen to my other podcast, Green Screen, which is available on the Apple Store, Google Podcasts, and all the major podcatchers. Those of you who like the environmental aspects of this show will probably enjoy Green Screen. Second Decade is going on hiatus. I'll be back most likely in September 2021. Have a good summer, get your vaccine if you haven't already, and be safe. The pandemic is not over. This podcast was written and recorded by me, Sean Munger. Good night. Have you heard about the 2018 study that showed half of prenatal vitamins tested had unacceptable levels of heavy metals? No? Well, now you have. I'm Kat, mother of three and founder of Ritual, the company making traceability the new standard in the supplement industry. I remember staring at my prenatal vitamins and finding all these things I was trying to avoid. High amounts of heavy metals, synthetic colorants, and unnecessary ingredients. So, at four months pregnant, I quit my job and started Ritual, because I believe that all women deserve to know what they're putting in their bodies and why. I'm so proud of our prenatal vitamin. The ingredients are 100% traceable, it's third-party tested for microbes and heavy metals, and recently received the Purity Award from the Clean Label Project. You see, we trace like a mother because, let's be honest, no one cares quite like a mother. But don't just take my word for it. Trace for yourself with 25% off at virtual.com slash podcast.